All right, good morning, everyone. Um, Shayla is just doing a little adjusting now, and I'm grabbing a stool so that I don't wander around and lose sight of you. And by the time I'm sitting here, hopefully, you can see me. How are we doing? All right. Well, welcome here. Um, Sorry if you have been watching this morning and you had some bad feedback there. That happened to us at about, you know, 10 minutes before we started. And uh, we've done our best to try and eliminate that. But uh, frankly, I don't know what the problem was. So that usually is concerning because it means it'll probably happen again. But we'll try our best to figure that out. Uh, If you want to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to continue through our series on that. Um, last Sunday, the 27th of December, uh, typically we would do kind of a one-off thing leading into the new year and start something new uh, for 2021, but I just went against tradition and started something before the new year started. So hopefully uh, that's okay. Hopefully you have caught up already. And if you haven't, you are welcome to, to check YouTube, to check uh, Facebook, to check our Apple podcast, all kinds of uh, different opportunities for you to catch up in what's been happening. Um, and so last week what we did is we looked at kind of an overview of 1 Corinthians. It's, it's not a huge book, but as far as New Testament letters go, uh, it, it's fairly significant, 16 uh, chapters to go through. And like I mentioned last week, this is probably going to take us, uh, I'll probably break for the summer and, and we'll probably finish right as we get back to Advent for 2021. Um, There's just lots to go through. But one thing that we did last week is we showed a video by a couple of guys from the Bible Project, which overviews the themes, um, the main ideas, the main points, the the specific points of contention and the issues that are going to be dealt with throughout the book. And it's about eight and a half minutes long. And so if you weren't able to catch that, um, it might even be okay to hit pause right now and and go watch that and then come back to this or, or you can catch up later. Uh, but a really good overview for us of what's the first, what, what is the letter to the first Corinthians about, uh, and what is Paul trying to say. So the long and the short of it is last week we looked at um, arrogance, arrogance being the main problem for the people uh, in Corinth. They had started to believe they were more important than other people within the church. Uh, and, and as the letter goes, you'll, you'll see various areas where that is. One of the things we see is in the area of spiritual gifts uh, later on near the end of the letter where they believed that there were certain ones that had huge importance and then some of these other ones were lesser and uh, people didn't even want them and, and didn't think about them uh, and, and didn't put any value in them. And Paul argues through that. But what he did in the first nine verses that we looked at last week is instead of dealing with the issues head on, he just took a step back and said, let's just look at God. Let's look at Jesus. Let's realize where we stand before God. Is not one of us on the day of judgment is going to approach um, Jesus with some kind of an arrogance or this belief that I deserve to be here. We're going to be overwhelmed by his grace and his mercy and his kindness, as, as we've just sang about this morning. And so that's kind of where Paul starts. Let's look at that so that we have a correct view of ourselves at a starting point where we recognize just how wonderful, how amazing God is, how unmerited his grace is towards us, how much we don't deserve anything. And so that brings us to this 
uh, verses 10 to 17. That's all we're going to go through here, these few verses. And it starts dealing with the major, or, or with the first major, I should say, issue within the church. The issue that we're going to talk about is one that I think, especially in our culture, is very relevant for us to look at. It's this idea of aligning ourselves with specific preachers or specific authors at the expense of other people. Um, we live in the age of celebrity pastors, right? We have mega churches all over the world, and some have huge uh, websites with all kinds of resources available, and I'm not knocking any of those. That's not my point, and I'll explain that further. Uh, but one of the unfortunate byproducts that have come from that is that people are so focused on specific individuals that they lose sight of the gospel. In fact, if you're on Facebook and if you happen to kind of follow any of these churches or any of these pastors or authors, um, one of the very saddening things that we see is just how much fighting happens within the body of Christ when some teacher or some author makes some statement and people just start fighting like crazy. And all it does is show the world that we have lost sight of everything that's important to us. We have lost sight of the gospel. And, and so, in some way, that's what's happening here, and that's what Paul wants to, to deal with. Now, let me just clarify something before we read. Is To Paul, unity is very important. In the Corinthian uh, church, it, it's a huge problem that needs to be addressed, but never in this letter is Paul saying unity over truth. That's not the point. Truth is vital. Truth is important. Understanding what we believe and why we believe it is essential. And we looked just a few months back, we looked at six very core things that our church believes and that we think are central to the gospel. And if we start to twist those, we start to twist the gospel. So there are things that we need to hold fast and firm. But the example that Paul gives here, these are things that are not those. These are just other things where we can agree to disagree on or agree to disagree upon and, and still have unity and still care for and love each other. And so we're not talking about unity at the expense of truth. We're recognizing where these are not issues and we're creating issues that shouldn't be there and, and, and we need to focus more on the love for one another and less on the specific issues. So let's read these, uh, these verses 10 to 17 together. And then we'll talk about them. And, and then, as Ernie mentioned, we'll have a communion after that. So it says this, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So now a really interesting section here, and a couple of things that we want to, 
how he begins. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He calls them brothers. He's, he's looking at them from a sense of affection and love and concern. He's appealing to them in the thing that should tie them all together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying that you would agree so that there would be no division among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, Paul mentions that there's a report that's been brought to him by Chloe's people. And, and honestly, we're, we're not really sure who uh, Chloe's people are. There's a bit of debate about that. Um, but frankly, for our purposes this morning, that debate is very unhelpful and just unnecessary. Um, but what the report is, is that there's quarreling amongst the believers there. And most of the commentators that I read uh, said this, this word quarreling in English is probably not a harsh enough word. It wasn't just that they were just kind of little, little arguments, but there was dissension, that there was fighting, that there was a, a great deal of problem uh, with as they got together to worship together. And he says uh, what the exact issue is. And, and as you read it, in verse 12, it, it seems like this can't even be true. This can't be real. Is Some are saying, I follow Paul. And some saying, I follow Apollos. Some saying, I follow Cephas or, or Peter. Uh, some saying, I follow Christ. And, and there's this division about which teacher is their favorite. Now, let me just say this. Is whenever you're not involved in the conflict, when you can step back from it, usually you can see how ridiculous those conflicts are. Usually you look at them and you go, man, why are you arguing about this? This doesn't even make sense. This is crazy. This is, this is so silly. We should just move past it. But at the same token, when we're involved in those conflicts, sometimes they seem to be the most, just the hugest issue. And, and we don't listen to reason from outside. And, and so I'm not trying to defend what's happening here by any means. What I am asking for is that we would have a little more understanding. That as we read this and as we look at this and go, this is ridiculous, how could you argue about this, is perhaps to look back at our own lives and go, man, we have had some pretty ridiculous arguments in our families, in our friend circles, in our churches in the past. And, and so there's truth here for us that we need to be aware of. So in this, they've, the people in Corinth have grabbed a hold of a certain teacher, a certain kind of celebrity pastor, as, as we would say in today's world. And, and there's two different ways in which this causes uh, big problems or can cause very big problems. The first is that the, the one pastor that you, or the one teacher, the one author, the one commentator, whatever it is, someone that you really look up to, and you read, you start to become loyal to them, and you start to defend any and everything they say, regardless of, of whether it's true or not. You just are so invested in them, or you, you like how they teach or how they write, that, that you just immediately gravitate towards them. And we start, or, or we stop thinking it from a critical standpoint and going, is what's being said true? Is it right? Is it according to Scripture or have we just become almost, in a sense, a follower of a cult because we're following a person and we're not following the gospel? And, and, and what that can do is that can actually make uh, those pastors, authors, teachers, whatever, it can make them get really puffed up and it can make them start to think they're so much more important than they are and that they're above reproach and, 
and it doesn't take long, and we've seen this over the last couple of months, some very high-profile Christian leaders and pastors and teachers who have fallen very, very far. And I, I don't want to get into the names of those people because, again, that sidetracks from the point. The point is that they were placed on some kind of a pedestal where they started to think it was okay to do things that the Bible teaches are completely wrong and they should know better. But because people had been lifting them up so much, it was easy for them to fall. A second way that this can be very, very dangerous is a denominational loyalty. Uh, Shayla and I experienced this a number of years ago. Uh, we pastored just for a couple of years in this little, little town uh, called Herbert, Saskatchewan, just 800 people. And, uh, and there was a story that was told to us from the leaders. This is a number of years before we were there. But they were part of a denomination that was progressively becoming more and more liberal. And the leadership of the church was not comfortable with uh, the direction that the denomination was heading. And so they sent, I think it was two, but I forget, it might have been a few more people uh, to their, their conference, their head, uh, their national conference, uh, just to kind of see and to hear and ask some questions. And they came home from that very, very troubled, very concerned about the direction that they were going. And, and as they told us the story, they said the leaders were standing up in front of the church crying because they were so heartbroken over what Christ what these Christian people in this denomination were starting to believe. And they said, we can't have anything to do with that. And again, the specific issues of that don't matter. Uh, but what I learned is that as they then voted for uh, whether they were going to leave the denomination or not, there were many people that said, no, we want to stay. And they thought that that was strange. And the conversations that ensued about that had nothing to do with what was true or what was right. It was simply but I've always been part of this denomination, and I always will be. And again, that shows that it's not about the gospel. It's not about what Scripture teaches. It's about some, some group that I belong to, and that's become my identity. And that's what Paul says here is, is, were you baptized into my name? You weren't baptized into my name. You were baptized into, into Christ, not me. And so this idea of the celebrity status, whether it's an individual or whether it's a group of churches or whatever it might be, can be so dangerous. But before we go on, let me clarify this. Is I'm not belittling pastors and authors and theologians and commentators, people uh, that specifically have helped you in your journey as you've uh, studied scripture or picked up a book and, and somebody really helped you realize something that was important in scriptures. I'm not belittling any of that. All I'm saying is don't let that become more important than the word of God. Don't elevate those people or those books or whatever it might be to a place that they don't belong because that be it becomes very dangerous for your own faith. What I see happening so often is you have one, a very big group of people who, who do get very, uh, fixated on one author, one teacher, one pastor, whatever it is, and, and whatever they say is gold and everything else everyone says is wrong. And the fights that happen, like I mentioned, uh, I follow one guy uh, on Facebook who has been influential in my own uh, learning, and I'm just always shocked at the fights that happen over the simplest little things that he says. Something about the grace of God, and all of a sudden there's a huge fight, apparently among people who call themselves followers of Christ. Very, very, just very sad. Uh, but on the other extreme, 
and, and we're going to talk about this in, in verse 12 here, is there's also sometimes a group of people that say something like, I follow Christ. And that sounds really good at first. But as Paul's going to explain to us, as, as we're going to see, is that ends up being people who go, I don't listen to anything anybody says. I just go to the Bible. And while theoretically that sounds really good, what ends up happening usually to those people is they isolate themselves from community, from investing in local church, from connecting to, to sitting under the authority of the word being taught. And again, that doesn't mean that, that those of you who are members of Bamp Park Church, you have to believe everything that I say because I'm your authority. That's a very bad understanding of what that means. You are allowed to um, disagree with me. You're allowed to come up, email me, phone me, or whatever it is, and be like, you know, you said this, and, and, and what about this part in Scripture? And I think maybe you've misunderstood this. Those conversations are good and, and healthy. But when we just go from church to church to church to church, and we just listen from this message to this message to this message, and we don't have any unity in as far as the group of people that we minister with and the people that we interact with and the people that help us grow, is, is we end up growing very, very slowly. And so there's two sides to this coin that we need to understand. So, so Paul says, some say they follow Paul, some say they follow Apollos, some follow Cephas, and some follow Christ. Well, Paul is the one who planted the church, so that one kind of makes sense from that standpoint, is some will look at this and go, man, Paul's the one who came and started everything. He's the one who taught us the very first things we know, so we trust him. We follow what he said. Um, some will say, I follow Apollos. Apollos came uh, later than Paul. And as I'm going to discuss in, in a few minutes in Acts, what we learn is, is it sounds like Apollos was one of the most gifted preachers that ever walked the earth. Someone who just knew scripture, who was eloquent, who was just very thoughtful and, and articulate and all, all these kinds of things. And then some say Cephas, and, and we're not sure that Cephas, that Peter actually ever even went to Corinth. Um, there's no, there's some debate about it, but there's, it's never plainly obvious that he did. And so the belief is kind of, well, he's the, the head or the, 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 the main apostle. And so that's where my authority lies. And then some say, I follow Christ. And again, to me, as I read that, I went, man, that, that's probably the right response. But actually, as you follow Paul's logic, is that's not the right response. Is, uh, here's what L. Morris says is, some have thought that there was no Christ party, understanding the statement, I follow Christ, as Paul's own interjection. And that's kind of how I read it the first time. But he continues on, he says, the construction of the sentence makes this very unlikely. The Greek seems to point to a fourth party, as does the question in verse 13, is Christ divided? So what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying his argument is not with any specific teaching of any specific party. He's upset that there's parties in general. It's Paul, Apollos, Peter, Christ. They all are teaching the same thing. What Christ taught, he said to his disciples, now go and teach others to do the same. Paul um, was on the road to Damascus. Jesus has this vision with him, and then he goes and he commissions him out to go and to plant churches in the name of Christ. Apollos comes under the teaching of Priscilla and Aquila and, and learns even more how to be more effective in the proclamation of Christ. Is they're all teaching the same thing. 
They're all united together, and yet in that unity, people try to seek disunity and try to seek, oh, my favorite. I like this person. Why would you like that person more? And so what Paul's upset about is that there's any division amongst us at all because it's ridiculous. There should be none. Now, what's really quite disappointing here is, as D. Pryor notes, he writes this, it's interesting, though very sad, to discover that Clement of Rome, who wrote about uh, in, uh, sorry, in 95 AD, talks about the same cliques and divisions at Corinth in his day. Though he does not mention the Christ party specifically, but for 40 years the trouble has not been eradicated. This indicates that we should expect and be on guard against these divisions, or sorry, these divisive tendencies at all times. And let us look at each of these groups. Is what he's saying is, even though Paul wrote this letter to deal with this, it wasn't eradicated. This is human nature happening, and we have to be on guard for these things. Sometimes we think of it in the sense of like, oh, it's corrected here, it's corrected, we're done, we never have to move on. But any of us who have lived for any given point or any kind of length of time, we know all of these things are cyclical and they just keep rearing their head. We keep having to deal with the same issues. We think we found victory or freedom over a certain uh, attitude or a certain uh, issue in our lives, and, and 20, 30, 40 years later, all of a sudden it pops up again. This is just the reality. We have to be, as Peter says, on guard, ready for the fight, because the devil roars around us looking for someone to devour. Paul's questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Right? All of these obviously rhetorical questions with a resounding answer of no. It's nonsense. It's crazy. Uh, Morris notes that this third question shows that they hadn't even realized the significance of their baptism. They had been baptized into Christ, not into any man. Their allegiance was to Christ alone. And then you have kind of this interesting text where Paul kind of says, I'm so thankful I've only baptized these two people. And then there's kind of brackets later. It's like, oh, maybe also these people. I don't think that I baptized anybody else. And some people will try and look at that and go, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Again, you're reading letters that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit used people to write them. And Paul's just going through this and going, I, I don't even want my name attached to this kind of baptism controversy because it's ridiculous, and I'm so glad that I baptized very few of you so that you can't add my name to this controversy. That's, that's all that he's trying to say. Paul says that, like I just said, that he's thankful that people can't attach his name to this. And as I quoted from Thielman last week, Thielman wrote this, this one of these issues, this one specifically, reveals that their own social advancement rather than the gospel's advancement was their top priority. Man, I was baptized by Paul. I've got like something way better to boast about. Other people are going, well, well, I was baptized by Apollos. And I, I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to baptize people. What a privilege and what a blessing. But it had nothing to do with me. And when they look back on their baptism, I hope they don't go, man, I'm so glad that Greg baptized me. I couldn't care less that my name is, I, I don't want my name attached to that. I identify with Paul in that sense. It's, I hope they look at that and go, 
that was this moment where I said, I declare Jesus as my Lord, and I was baptized into his Lord. That's the focus. And yet so often, we crave this, this praise. We crave this uh, acknowledgement before people. In Acts chapter 14, you have the story of Paul and Barnabas, and, and they heal a crippled man. And, uh, and all the people around that see him uh, healed are astonished, and they start falling down and worshiping Paul and Barnabas and calling them gods. Man, that's like power right there, hey? And how do they respond? Well, they could respond easily with this like, yes, we are this worthy. Give us everything you have. They could use that for their own advancement in any kind of way they wanted to. What the text says is they tore their clothes and they cried out and said, no, we're just men like you. It is the Holy Spirit who's doing this. Now it's awesome to, be, to happen to be one that you see God use you in a great and mighty way in one moment. That's very neat. But it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. And as soon as we start to think, and this is what was happening in Corinthians, man, I have this gift, or I, I am this knowledgeable, I have this much wisdom, and they start to point to themselves instead of to God. That's always where the downfall happens. As commentator Robert uh, Robertson and Plummer, they beautifully put it this way. Into the name implies entrance into fellowship and allegiance and such ex as exists between the Redeemer and the redeemed. That's the connection. Not between Greg and somebody. Not even between Banff Park Church and the people who attend here. It's Christ. We are uniting under one now, let's look at the last verse here because I want to clarify a couple things because it's just kind of an interesting verse. Paul says he came to preach, not to baptize. And that kind of seems to be like some kind of strange dichotomy. Is as you read through the New Testament, it's like someone preaches, someone responds to the message, then they are baptized. It's like this one big event. And so why is Paul kind of separating this in this moment? It, it doesn't seem to make much sense to us. And so this is, again, where a cultural understanding of what is happening in that time period is so important. In Acts chapter 6, we read that the church is growing so rapidly, and there were many uh, liturgical functions, as theologians call it, many just very practical things that needed to be done. Baptism was one of these, uh, looking after widows and orphans, caring for the poor, all these various ideas. And in uh, Acts chapter 6, there, what we read is that some men God had gifted to go and to preach. And in that, they gathered together and said, look, we have, we have too much going on right now. We need to bring other godly people in who can take care of some of these other things that are gifted in other areas so that we can continue to preach so that the church can continue to grow. As each looked at his own thing, at his own responsibility, at his own gifting given to them by God. And so a whole bunch of other people come in and some go out to care for and to serve and to love while others went out to preach and it's not as the one is more important than the other is i think what's happening in acts 6 and, and I, I would argue that first corinthians 12 is going to prove this is that not any of us individually can do the roles of all of these things is we need to require we need to lean on 
our fellow brothers and sisters with different gifts and different abilities so that we can all accomplish the same mission and the same goal. And there's not one that's more important than another. They're just different. And it's good that they're different. It's good that we are different. If we all had the same gift and we all thought the same, it just it wouldn't be a good and effective thing. The very point that we have a family that sees things with different perspectives, that sees certain things that we miss, uh, wants to care for others that we haven't thought of, all of those things are vitally important for the church. And I think that's what Paul's simply saying here. He's saying, I was, was told, go and preach the gospel and teach people about who Jesus is. I don't think Paul's belittling baptism at all. I think he's saying, here was my call given to me by God to go and to do this, and others would come and take up the mantle of the other aspects that happen. And the whole reason that I think that is because Paul planted churches and left people, local people, to be the leaders of those churches so that those churches would grow and reach those communities. And he moved on to another church, and then to another church, and then to another church. Otherwise, he just would have stayed. And he would have said, this is my job. This is what I'm doing. The other part of this verse that's very uh, interesting and can be misunderstood is he says, I didn't come with eloquent words of wisdom because that would have emptied the cross of its power. Now again, when we read that, it sounds like, well, that's kind of a contradiction because if you remember in Acts 17, Paul actually very eloquently uh, presents a, a gospel message and uses what is happening in that cultural context, in that moment, and he's using his wisdom and his knowledge to share the gospel with people effectively. So what is he saying? Well, here's what Morris writes for us again. Some, at least of the Corinthians, were setting too high a value on human wisdom and human eloquence in line with the typical Greek admiration for rhetoric and philosophical studies. In the face of this, Paul insists that the preaching with words of human wisdom was no part of his commission. That kind of preaching would draw people to the preacher. It would nullify the cross of Christ. The faithful preaching of the cross leads people to put their trust not in any human device, but in what God has done. A reliance on rhetoric would cause trust in men, the very opposite of what the preaching of the cross is meant to affect. So very simply put as this is, Paul isn't trusting in his own abilities. He's trusting that God will equip him in that moment. There's a verse in Acts that says, in that moment, don't worry about what you're going to say. God's going to give you the words to say. It's, it's not about us. Now, again, that doesn't get us off the hook, right? Acts 18 talks about Apollos' uh, eloquence and his ability to, as I understand it, to put uh, sermons together in this way that is very convicting and very powerful for the hearer. God has equipped him to do that. But if, if Apollos is leaning on his ability, then it's going to fail. Earlier on in Acts, you have this movement of Christianity that's building. And, and you have uh, Paul's um, teacher who kind of says, you know what? If this isn't of God, it's just going to die out and don't even worry about it. But if this is of God, nothing you can do will stop it. And that's the same of what we need to think of it. This isn't in my ability. 
This isn't in, in my eloquence. This isn't in my ability to present something that you've never heard. This is the power of God speaking through his word. And I hope that I get to be a vessel of that. But it's not because I'm super smart and no one else is. That just builds my own arrogance up and goes, the church cannot exist without me. I'm so important to it. If we ever think that, we are in so much trouble because the simple reality of everything is that God doesn't need me for one thing. God chooses to use me because he wants me to be part of his team. That's awesome. And God chooses you and equips you and gifts you for certain ways for certain times. And that's wonderful. But don't ever think that it's, it's dependent upon you. It's dependent upon God. It's dependent on the power of the cross. R.L. Pratt writes, the gospel message contradicts human wisdom so that it cannot be mixed with the power of human wisdom and have manipulative persuasion. It's not about manipulating someone into believing in Jesus. It's about showing them who Jesus is and allowing the Holy Spirit to go, there is none other like him. And then as they experience God, they turn towards God, not because of me, not because of words I said, but because of what God has done. Now that, again, that doesn't give me uh, license to be like, well, I shouldn't bother studying this week. I, I don't need to do any homework. I, I'm just going to read the text and I'm just going to let people, like I still have a job to do. I'm still called to teach. I'm still called to study the word of God and to present it to the best of my ability as long as I understand that it's not because of this thing that I say that someone's going to become a Christian. It's because of the faithfulness of God convicting the, that heart of that person. And so there's both a tandem that happened here. Let me just end with, uh, with this before we have communion. Is As Tim Mackey pointed out in the, in the video last week, love for one another is a central message throughout 1 Corinthians. Having people understand their own arrogance is a problem. You're elevating yourself or your own wisdom too high, and you need to start caring and love for one another. And I came across this quote that I thought would be great to end with um, from Pryor, and he says this. Our Western tendency to do to be detached and objective in discussing a situation enables us to, to analyze differences in the church in what we believe to be a careful biblical way. We can pursue such a course sitting in the same room as those with whom we disagree and never meet one another as people, let alone as brothers and sisters in Christ. We part company convinced that the real problem is theological when in fact we have managed by our very detachment to prevent the love of God from being from bringing harmony and mutual acceptance. We then declare that theological differences are the cause of the schism between us. Now let me clarify again. There are some theological things that are central, that are so important. But more often than not, it's because I think I'm right, I think you're wrong. And we end up at this impasse where I, I'm not loving you the way that God has called me to. That becomes so important. So when you disagree with someone, when you're having conversation with them and you think that they're wrong, ask yourself the question, are you more trying to prove that you're right and they're wrong or are you trying to care for their soul and show them that you love them? Sometimes that will mean they need correction. But they'll need correction from the word of God. Sometimes that'll mean that 
this is not that big a deal and I need to just back off and not think it's so important. And as we allow God to let his love reign in us so that that love can be can come out of us and be given to other people, that is when we will make the biggest and most impacting difference on their lives. Because they'll see that this love doesn't make any sense. Why would you love me? Why would you care for me so much? Because the love of God is in me and I want it. I want to demonstrate that to you. We will continue on next week um, in the second half of this chapter and continue to deal with some of these controversies, some of these difficulties. But I hope that as we read these things that we recognize in our own hearts, let's not elevate pastors or authors or commentators to a place that they shouldn't be. Let's not pick sides. Let's not become divisive. But let's try and remain united in what is true, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again so that we might have new life and so that we can come together as a community and we can honor him by the way that we live and act. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this reminder and the truth that we need to hear in in this. God, I I know that so often I gravitate towards one teacher because I I like the way that they communicate or, or because I agree with them. But God, help me to not, help that, help me to not allow that to cloud my own judgment. Help me to always go to scripture to see what is true and what is right. And God, help us to remain united as a church, to know that we love Jesus, we want to declare Jesus to our community, to those that live here, and we want to love and care for our people. God, may those things remain central. God, thank you for all that you have done. As we go into a time of communion now, and as we remember your death and resurrection, may that stay the central motivating factor for everything that we do and why we do it because of the love of Christ. Be with us now in these moments as we take communion. Amen. So again, if you haven't uh, got your stuff ready, you can hit pause if you haven't done that already uh, and grab your things. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I am just going to walk over here and grab my stuff. I might walk out of frame on you. But I promise I'm coming back. So in 1 Corinthians 11, here's what we read in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, in a few months, we're going to deal with this text specifically um, in chapter 11 here and and understand a little bit further of the context of what's happening. But again, the issue here is that people are not waiting for people to gather together for this, and they're using the Lord's Supper as a way for them to just eat, be merry, and have fun. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is that we slow down 
is that we come together and that we remind ourselves of what unites us together, the blood of Jesus. The fact that he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. The fact that he rose again so that we can have new life, both, both a life of meaning and purpose here and now on this earth, and also a life with God in eternity. And in our hectic, crazy lives where efficiency is so important and, and where we probably don't know how to rest very good, Jesus says to slow down, Take this meal remembering what's most important to us. And so if you have a, a cracker or a, or a bread or whatever you have in front of you, I just want you to take that for a moment and consider that Jesus is, is saying to us the same as he did to them. Is he's trying to get them to realize the significance of this moment. And of course, we have hindsight. We know this is that Jesus was about to go to the cross. He was about to offer up his body for us so that our sins would be forgiven. Sometimes growing up in a Christian home or being part of a church for a long time, we can just start to think that being a Christian is just this normal thing. But it's not normal at all. It's extraordinary. And so may we in this moment, as we hold this bread, as we break it together and as we take it, may we remember that this is Jesus' body broken for us that we might have our sins forgiven. So let's eat this in remembrance of him. God, thank you for your love for us and, and that Jesus went so willingly to the cross to die for our sin, something he did not deserve. God, we thank you for that, and we thank you for his blood, the only sufficient atonement for our sin. And so as we hold the cup in our hands now, and as we get ready to drink this together, we are reminded that there was no other way for atonement to be made. That Jesus and Jesus' blood alone, that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. God, thank you for this, amen. Let's drink in remembrance that he is the only way. God, as we move forward with our day today and with the week that you've placed in front of us, would we not be so consumed with efficiency and all the tasks that we have to accomplish, but would all of those things be secondary to wanting to declare Jesus to those that we interact with? God, we have celebrated that we can be with you for eternity because of your death and resurrection on the cross. We, we celebrate knowing that Jesus is coming back again. And we celebrate because we know that we can have boldness 
before you, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so, God, as we go to the normal things of our week, our jobs and our families, the, the tasks of even things that just seem so mundane and normal, would we choose to view all of those things under the love and grace of Jesus, and may we look for opportunities to make Jesus known to the world that we have found ourselves in here. God, what a privilege it is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. May we take that role very seriously. Go with us this week and be at work in our hearts. We love you. Amen. Again, it's been a privilege to have you with us uh, virtually. We're very much looking forward to hopefully some new regulations in the coming weeks and, and being able to meet together in person again. Um, but for now, we will sign off again this week and we'll say we'll see you next week. Have a great